Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. And we are live, says YouTube. How are you going, mate? Good, man. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Been a bit of a busy week and we're recording on a Friday, Arvo. It's December 10th at 3 p.m. Um, I'm not going to lie. I did have a beer over lunch. So my mental capacity, I'm probably not there today, but um, I'm excited to talk about some interesting companies. Uh, we've got a few US tech stocks getting sold down. We've had Alcidian here in Australia um, make an acquisition of Silverlink. And we've got Magellan, which is a fascinating story unfolding before our very eyes. But that's that's what we can talk about today. We're obviously going to take some questions. If you are ch- tuning in for the live stream, you can just hit the live stream chat there and you can say g'day, ask us your questions about whatever topics you want. Say hello. It'd be wonderful to hear from you. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the the administration side of the live stream and the podcast this week. We, I feel like we haven't done these for a while. How long has it been? Two weeks? Three yeah. weeks? It's been a couple of weeks, I think, couple at least that we haven't done. I mean, you know, like, okay, before I was going to ask you, you know what, you know, you've been really busy um, and therefore maybe you can tell us why you were busy, but uh, I saw some beautiful photographs of you having good food at good locations. So that's always good. But before that, you know, I was going to challenge your assumption. I mean, you know, you're, you're putting Aussies to shame if you said that you can't think after having one beer. That's, that's just going to be like, you know, this stream is broadcast live worldwide, right? I mean, I can't let that happen. With one beer, come on. Like, I mean, yeah, you know, you're, right. you're, right. you're on fire. That's, is, that's is lubrication. That's lubrication it's, for an Australian. Exactly. We are not you're, even yeah, you're on fire. tip of the iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> so the we, iceberg. Australians get better. If you ask anyone from overseas, we get better with five beers. So I'm still on that. <laughs> I'm still ramping up into it. Right. But um, yeah, no, it's it's the, the the curse of a Friday afternoon, right? It's it's one of those things in the office, the corporate office. You cannot have a meeting on a Friday afternoon because who knows where the lunchtime takes you. But no, it's um it's very actually just come to think of it now. This is actually the first time that we've been out for lunch, or at least I've been out for lunch for well over a year, and just you can just enjoy yourself, and it's busy here in Melbourne, so it's actually fantastic. It's fantastic to see people out and doing things and. It's really, you know, a change from this time a year ago, this time six months ago. So I'm stoked with that. But hey, that's enough about me and my antics on a Friday midday. What about you? What have you been working on? It feels like it's been forever. What have I been working on? Well, you know, I've been writing uh, uh, year-end reviews. Uh, so basically for stocks that are on the seven, uh, seven investing scorecard that I either follow or I have recommended. Um, mm-hmm. Just writing a year-end review, uh, sort of trying to just think through what happened to the business. And I find that process very interesting because, you know, sometimes you can, uh, you know, even the company that you own and you understand very well, sometimes it's good to actually just reflect. And, and there's no better thing than writing to reflect. And I just, you know, uh, you know, something, it just makes it a little bit, um, you know, you can, you really think through the thesis as to, well, you know, is that really what's happening? Um, especially for troubled stocks, right? I mean, stocks that are not doing well, businesses that are having difficulty executing. I think it, it's really a useful thing to do. Um, it's not so much for uh, for the companies, I guess, that are executing. That's one thing that I've been doing, and I think I find, found that quite enjoyable. What else did I do? I've been brushing up my watch list, um, you know. But you know, every time I brush my watch list, 
clean uh, using the shiny apple cloth, the stocks go up. Uh, <laughs> so then I put it away. And if I put it away, it goes down. <laughs> so uh, I don't know what to do. Maybe I should keep brushing them so the stocks keep going up. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, I've been doing that. And I've been looking for, uh, you know, ideas for next month, you know, for the January recommendations. I've been thinking about what, mm. what to recommend uh, for, for January. Do you, do you get some time off over Christmas or how does that work? I get time off. I mean, you know, uh, most of the stuff that we do, it's, it's pretty much on a regular cadence, right? So, you know, our recommendations yeah. will come out first of January, um, but, you know, we'll have them locked in in due course. And um, yeah, I, I'm not, so usually December is the time because of school holidays when I travel, or I used to travel, I should rephrase that, mm-hmm. and I haven't traveled in two years. Yeah, no. Anyway, and, and I don't have any plans of traveling yet. Uh, because most of my travels usually are like, I like traveling overseas um, and, uh, you know, going to different places and seeing different things. And, you know, being the school holidays gives you just longer, longer time uh, to do that. But, you know, given how the rules keep changing uh, <laughs> every so often, uh, you know, I'm sort of in a wait and watch mode to just understand how things are unfolding. Um, mm. Yeah. So, no, I have no travel plans. And, um, over, you know, so I'm actually at home. I'll be All doing time. gardening. More time for research. Uh, more time for cutting grass. You know, the, the amount of r- <laughs> rain has been incessant. You know, it's so much that my, my ride on more now needs service. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, well, I wish I did have a ride on. My grass is probably not long enough for that, but um, nor do I have enough of it to do. But that's, yeah, it's always good just to be able to have a Christmas at home and just enjoy the time with family anyway and not feel like you're rushed around. I think that's that's really neat. Um so we've got some, we've got plenty of uh, content to get through today. We're we're going to talk about Magellan, Alcidian. We're going to talk about some U.S. tech stocks. We've got some cybersecurity companies that I know you're keen to talk about. Um, just in terms of what I've been working on, just at Rask, we actually went away on a retreat to Dalesford in Victoria, which was heaps of fun. Um, I don't know if you've ever been there to Dalesford in the outskirts of Melbourne. It's like an hour out, or an hour and a half out. <clears throat> Never been there. Yeah, it's like a it's a country town, but it's got a lot of character. So it's it's a really nice spot for to get to get away as a couple or as in you know even as a as a team. It was lovely, but um one of the things that we're working on at Rask, which I think is relevant to this conversation, is um we're working on our value investor program. So this is where we do our online course, which trains you to basically do your own valuations and, and what have you. That's been the the focus for me and uh, for the team recently. And for the, basically it's a sprint into Christmas trying to get this done. And for those, there, there are a few hundred people that have taken the, the course, the, the value investor program that we already had. But to, to put it in context, I feel like this next version of the, the program is probably twice as extensive. So in the first one, it was, when, when I pick the companies that we do our case studies with in this online course, I tend to pick the companies that I have a lot of conviction in. So last time it was PayPal, Push, push Pay here in Australia and um, Zero. And each of those companies, I don't know if they multi-bag, like I don't think Push Pay did. It definitely obviously has performed pretty well. But um, this time we're going to take, instead of having three case studies, we're going to have five or six and from a different mix of industries and, and we're incorporating interviews in that. In throughout the course so that's a heap of fun it's called the value investor program that'll be out in the hopefully in a few weeks if not a couple of months so um you can enroll and you can see other reviews there on the rask education site but that's what i've been working on it's been good to go back and, and do that sort of stuff 
Um, just to, if you want to join in the conversation, you can say g'day on YouTube Live. Just one more call for questions there. And also you can find us on Twitter at 7A Mahunty and at Owen Rask on Twitter. We love to, to to chat and occasionally we do spaces. So that's a, that's a bit of fun too. I know the 7 Investing team will occasionally jump on and chat. And there was a live stream yesterday with Simon Erickson, uh, which is a heap of fun. So um, reach out to us on Twitter. Okay, mate. First of all, first cab off the rank is, I guess, Magellan. Um, I'm not sure how well you know the Magellan business. I think we've been over it a little bit, but do you know much about it? Well, I know the Magellan business. I know uh, Himish, <laughs> um, yeah. or, or know of him, but I haven't actually been following what the, what the drama is. I'm all I'm really keen to hear what's going on. Yeah. So obviously, the big thing with any global fund manager is performance. So not just a global fund manager, any fund manager is performance and. Hamish, having started, um, I believe it was 2007, 2008, he started the fund. Um, what he was principally focused on at the time was reducing the downside capture. So what do we mean by that? That's financial jargon for they're trying to, every fund manager says, we're going to try and beat the market with less than market risk. And so the way that they do that, obviously you can measure performance as returns since inception versus the benchmark and then on the other side to for the, the risk side of that they measure it in volatility so it might be like standard deviation um, another way you can measure it and it's a way that many i think good fund managers over time do it is they basically look at the maximum drawdown uh -huh. so a drawdown for those of you that are new to it is basically from the top to the next you know trough how far is that down before it recovers again uh -huh. And you and I will know from investing in individual stocks that typically the companies with the drawdowns are often the most exciting and the, the companies that go on to multi-bag. But in funds management, if you have a fund manager that has, say, 30 stocks in their portfolio, to have a massive drawdown is often a, a sign that they may not have as well diversified portfolio as they say. And it also means that a financial advisor finds it hard to recommend them to clients because clients just see the returns and like, oh, gosh, I've got to sell this thing out. So Hamish has done a superb job, probably one of the best in Australia, if not the best in Australia, at basically articulating the message that you can protect a portfolio if you construct it smart, you know, you construct it in a thoughtful manner where the beaters of those individual positions, so that's like the volatility versus the market, is low. You can hold a little bit of cash and you can deploy that cash when the market crashes. And therefore, so one thing that people don't know about um, at least new investors don't necessarily understand about uh, having a cash position is actually a cash position reduces your volatility. So say, let's say you have 20% of your portfolio in cash. You, when you measure the volatility, obviously you've got 20% of a portfolio that's automatically not going to have any volatility because it's invested in cash. So by default, as a fund manager, you can look better than the market from that perspective. And so by having say 10 or 20% in cash, you're already kind of over that base, provided your 80% of stocks aren't just kind of like 100x sales multiples. And so Hamish has done a really good job of managing that cash while also managing the individual stocks to make sure that their you know, positions aren't too correlated and whatever. So let's fast forward from that was say 2007, 2008, GFC, fast forward to now, the business is over $100 billion, I believe in FUM. And the reality is as a fund manager gets bigger, performance can drag. So you and I would know if we had $1,000, we could be a lot more kind of flexible with that money, invest it quickly and find tactical opportunities. Whereas if you've got $100 uh, billion, um, you're obviously dealing with a lot of money. And so 
you can't be as, as nimble and as flexible and it just becomes generally harder. Like Warren Buffett says this too. And so as the business has got bigger, it's created more funds. There are now these active ETFs inside the vehicle that earn a, a lower fee load. So the active fund that Hamish made his name on um, is a slightly higher fee. That's still where the majority of money is invested. Um, one thing that Magellan has done really well, and I might just switch screens here if I can, um, if I can bring this up here for those of you that are watching live. Uh, for those of you that are listening, I'll explain it to you. But you can see here, here's the, um, the ASX release for uh, Magellan for November uh, 2021. And you can see the split of, of, of investor dollars here. So there's $116 billion in total. $86 billion of that is in the global equities or global stocks part of the, the, the management of the fund. Um, there are, there's the infrastructure sleeve of the business, which is also very appealing, run by Gerald Stack. Um, and then there's Australian equities, which includes the acquisition of early funds and so on and so forth. And so what we can see here is farm is still going up, but the flows and um, how much money people are actively investing is the, the thing that's up for debate and quite contentious right now. So this kind of sets the groundwork. So it's a massive global fund manager based here in Australia. So what's what's gone wrong? Why is this the, the business you know being sold down? Uh, if we just jump quickly across into the ticket terminal here, we can see that this is comparing the enterprise value of Magellan Financial Group, so the company that Hamish is the chief investment officer of. You can see the um, the this relates the earnings, uh, sorry the the enterprise value. So this is market cap plus net cash to the revenue, and you can see here that. You know, there's been some pretty jarring moments over the past couple of years. And what this basically reflects, in my opinion, is sentiment. When I look at um, enterprise value to revenues and I see big falls um, in this ratio, what it pretty much tells me is that investors are willing to pay less. And so we've seen um, the funds under management growth called into question. We've just had the CEO uh, announce his resignation after so many years at the helm. Uh, we've got this underperformance issue um, that you know has been the subject of the AFR um, articles, but then there's obviously some some personal things going on behind the scenes that, frankly, in my opinion, I don't think deserve to be written about in a national newspaper from a from a, like a personal perspective. I think it may be relevant to some investors who are looking at who are looking at the company and saying, oh well, maybe the the the, the chief is uh, distracted. But you can see from that chart there that it's pretty simple. Um, Investors have questions. And so what's this done? This has dr driven up the kind of the yield of the company. The company still makes a substantial amount of um, free cash flow, which I think shouldn't go um, unnoticed. So we're in a position now where all of a sudden, statistically, Magellan looks very cheap. It's actually at one of the cheapest points for the shares as it has ever been. And um, there are only two instances, I believe, in the history of, well, at least the ticket terminal is showing me where it's been cheaper from an enterprise value to um, sales ratio perspective. So um, this is like a long-winded way to, to introduce the problem, but um, I don't know if you have any questions around that or kind of like I can keep riffing, but I, I should draw breath and let you speak for a second. <laughs> well, just a couple of comments. I think uh, one is, I mean, so... Uh, I guess the main thing in my mind is between 2007, eight, and now, I think the biggest change that has happened is the introduction of ETFs, right? So what you couldn't do you previously, uh, and you needed a fund manager to do it for you, now you could do using 
an ETF, right? And an advisor could recommend, at least a financial advisor could recommend a, a bundle of ETFs to essentially deliver you what um, a fund manager could deliver you and potentially do that at lower fees. So I think that's something that is um, probably a headwind for the entire fund management industry, right? As a whole, I mean, most active fund managers therefore now have ETFs <laughs> uh, for, for that reason. Like now ARC is a good example, right? So uh, ARC has ETFs where, and it's a very interesting model in the sense that, you know, once you have an ETF, you actually have all the trades that you're making on a daily basis show up, especially if you're an mm-hmm. uh, active fund manager. Um, so that's, I think, one thing I think that is different between now and then. I mean, as a continuum, it's a slow change. Um, the only other thing I'll say is that I, th- I think from then to now, the market has, you know, it's been a bull market really, right? So, and and we've only started seeing some volatility now, so maybe that has some effect. I would, I would contend that... On a, on a global scale of things, this is the only thing that I disagree with you, or at least partially disagree with you, is that I don't think what is happening would have anything to do with the farm size. The farm size could be, it's just very difficult. Like if I think of an Australian fund manager, like there is nobody, there are very few people, I guess, or there's probably no one who mm. has $100 billion of farm in Australia as a single like entity, right? That is a huge amount of farm to have. But that farm is, I think, not a deterrent to performance because, I mean, I was just checking the performance of big tech uh, this morning. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, Google is up 69% year to date and Apple is up 30% year to date. And I don't know, Tesla is up 50% year to date. So, I mean, if you're buying global t- global companies and you're only managing $80, $90 billion of funds, that's really a in, that's like a penny uh, in the big ocean, right? And so you'd not, I can understand if there's a problem for small caps, but it's not really, a, you know, and Australian small caps, when I say, you know, when you, if we say Australian small caps and you're thinking of like, you know, sub $500 million market cap companies, for those, I think the form size really matters. So I'd say those would be my high level comments. I have nothing to say about, you know, what's going on in terms of personal life and stuff. And that, you know, uh, I guess my a last comment would be, with any fund management house, if and we, we talked about this before, I guess, mm. the, the issue might be that if you have one star manager or one star person, and that the entire, I guess, firm inflow is a function of that star, <laughs> that is a big, that's a, that's a tailwind when you have it, and it's a headwind when you don't, or when, when people think you don't, or whatever it is. Um, and I think that might be the other thing. So those are the things I can, you know, again, as a, as a distant observer, that's what, those would be my comments, but I'll pass it back to you. Yeah. Okay. So, and I, I tend to agree with you in some respects, there is headwinds for funds, active funds management generally. Like we see that across the board. I think one of the things that goes in the favor of Magellan right now is that the, the principal investment side of the portfolio, those kind of, um, those larger strategic stakes that, that I guess the genesis of that dates back to a, quite a few years ago when they decided we're going to transition the active fund or the global fund from open-ended to closed-ended to try and capture some of that capital. Um, we're going to in, invest in this thing called Baron Joey, which is an investment bank. We've got um, GYG, um, Guzman Y. Gomez in there. We've got um, FinClear. So they've kind of built out this stable of brands underneath the using the, the company's free cash flow, which I always think is really interesting because I think that's if I was a fund manager at scale earning 
you know, millions upon millions of dollars of free cash flow. That's exactly what I would be doing. I'd be putting my money into these permanent equity positions. I'd be trying to lock in investors in my funds, trying to transition them across. And I think they've done a pretty good job of that. You're right though. They're the only fund in Australia that, at least at the top of my mind, that has so few strategies and are not passive that have $100 billion. Um, I'm just looking at some of the companies here. We've got Alibaba. Uh, this is going back, I think it was the end of October. So things might have changed since then. We've got Alphabet or Google. Um, we've got Facebook, Microsoft, Netflix, Pepsi, SAP, Starbucks, the list goes on. And these companies are large and liquid. So to your point, even if you have, say, $80 billion in global equities, you may be able to invest that in a way that the liquidity profile of the positions that you own doesn't restrict you too much. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, maybe I think there are certain funds and strategies that are, are, are conducive to certain environments. So when, like you say, you've got a bull market, what strategies are conducive to that? Well, typically growth orientated funds will do better in that environment, whereas value funds will, will, will do better when maybe there's volatility in the market. And um, I guess the general thing is here, I was having a chat with the guys internally about this the other day, is that one of the things that I like to do when I think about sentiment is how much worse can it get? And, you know, I, I take, I very much take your point about Hamish being the, the, the lead singer of the band. Like he's obviously a fantastic investor and he's done tremendous things at Magellan. Um, so I've got a heap of respect for what he does. Um, I think they have done a good job of grooming some of the other PMs now. They've got Dom Giuliano as deputy CIO. We don't hear as much from him as Hamish, but still, you know, commander in chief when he's not around. Um, if we look at the early funds management business, we've got John Sevier, we've got Emma Fisher. So some really good um, investors coming up there. And one final piece that I'll have on, to say on this is within the Magellan business, you basically have the active ETFs, which are the low cost version. So we're seeing that kind of hybrid model. They're aware of that, that shift to ETFs. Then you've got, if you want the, the kind of richer full noise experience, you've got that with the active fund at a higher fee load. Obviously, how much worse can it get? We could see instos leave, which isn't a normal part of being a fund management business. Um, but you don't obviously don't want too many to leave. Um, they've got a good mix of that too. Um, the other thing is obviously if we just see net outflows, continued underperformance. Um, there's, there are many things that can happen, but I think the, the market doesn't like the uncertainty of not having a CEO, particularly when one departs after so long a successful business. I think that's a something that the team will need to be working on. So. I guess for me personally, like I'm just bringing it up here. Um, I think I wasn't too interested in the business a few months ago, but if they can write the ship on performance, which is so important, um, I think, you know, this, the five to 6% dividend yield plus ranking credits alone makes it really interesting. And I think from a, all of a sudden it's gone from growth to value play. I think if that, the key is that performance. If they can get that global fund right, which they have a track record for, they've still got capacity in that infrastructure fund in the ETF core series. So I've, I, I, to be honest, mate, I just find it really interesting at these levels. Um, you know, Platinum is probably the case study that's gone before it. And um, I challenged one of the guys in the team to figure out, has it been market beating even with a declining share price? Can it continue to... Um, has it outperformed just on dividends alone? So Virtuoso um, on, tw on uh, in 
not Instagram, on YouTube just said the exposure to China and Alibaba in particular also has had a big impact on the near-term performance. That along with holding cash due to a pessimistic view on the recovery post-vaccine, I think. And yeah, so we've, we've kind of seen that cash drag um, coming out of a vicious bull market. So I think this is a pretty polarizing debate. If anyone in the chat wants to tell us what they think of Magellan, um, let us know. And if you think it's um, buy, hold or sell, we'd love to know what you think because there were some people on Twitter that basically said it's time to short Magellan. And I think you and I both share similar views on this. I think if you're going to short something, first of all, it's really risky. Second of all, you probably don't want to do it when it's already bouncing off the bottom, so to speak. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I, I would not short. <laughs> There's a difference between not going long on something versus going short. Like, I mean, you know, you want to only short those businesses that you know are for sure going to, uh, you know, go bankrupt or something like that. Oh. Or this is not a business going to go bankrupt. <laughs> like in the next 10 years, there's no chance of it going bankrupt. So, yeah. yeah. So no, <laughs> um, <laughs> I would not, yeah. that would not be, that is a, that would be almost like burning money <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and your hands in the process. So no. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, and I agree. Yes, so and this, yeah, it's it's a bit of fun. I had a tongue in cheek comment back to that. So, so which one are we shorting? Because it's um, it's one of the things where people tend to short right at the moment when there's most pessimism. And shorting requires a catalyst, in my view. You have to understand your time frame. Um, unless there's a catalyst, you don't want to short sentiment. That's what I've realized over the years. You don't want to short sentiment. Um, if anything, you want to short it when it's at the other end of the spectrum, but then you don't know if it's going to just keep going because of easy money and whatever. But um, really interesting uh, company. If you if you know a bit about it, jump into the chat. We've got some articles over on Rust Media. I think it's I think it's interesting. I think now's the time to look at it. If I was going to look at, it, I think we're going to have some uncertainty with um, Brett Cant stepping back. But um, super super impressive business. Um, Ant Bly says. Magellan has an investment strategy, say five plus years, has the potential to perform well when there is much more clarity with COVID, China, et cetera. Yeah, so that that's interesting. That that exposure to China is obviously a key theme here. So um, I think Platinum a few years ago really missed out on the trade towards US tech and they were still heavy in, in, in China tech. Um, this is going back quite a few years now and they kind of missed out on that that kind of stardom that went to Magellan for that very reason. So that positioning from Magellan is really important. Um, at the end of the day, you know, but, sorry, go on, mate. Yeah, no, no, no. So I just thought that I was just quickly going to add that, you know, the, the thing with China is, so this is what I've realized over the years or after going back and forth about China is that if you want exposure to China, you don't necessarily need to invest in companies that exclusively perform businesses in China. That just increases yeah. your risk. You, if agree. you want to, right? If you want to have exposure to China, you just need to have global enterprises that actually have a segment called China, and they're likely to do well because, I mean, if China is growing, those businesses should grow, and if China is clamping down or whatever the issues are, well, that's going to affect both local players and global players equally. Uh, the local players actually don't have the other part of the business really to uh, to climb on, right? Or at least to rest on. So, I mean, that's part of the issue. The other issue is that everybody, like a large chunk of China investments has happened via ADRs and or uh, listings mm. abroad, right? And I mean, right now, it seems to me 
some of the issues are more geopolitical in nature. They are about punishing investors and not. <laughs> and mm. it's it's a bit like it's a bit self, you know, in 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 the soccer terminology, like scoring self goals. So uh, maybe some some self goals are being scored here um, <laughs> uh, by you know penalizing companies that are actually you know uh, doing. I mean, the U.S. is doing doing that too to some extent by you know going after mm. its big tech. So sometimes governments across across the world actually love to score self goals because it's seems to, uh, you know, um, solve some agenda or something like that. But anyways, yeah, I, I think, you know, you can, there are many ways to invest in China. Yeah, there is. And I agree with you. I, you can ask most lawyers that are investors that getting direct exposure to China from a technical perspective can also be a bit challenging too. So um, I agree with you there. Daniel says, um, this is on Magellan, they have a great rollout of products that will need around three years to gain momentum. I suspect the future flows in those being early future pay core series and ESG will cover the majority of outflows in the near term, which is interesting. Um, some of those ETFs and, and what have you are still coming off a, a relatively low base compared to the global fund. So something to something to um, follow very closely. I know I will be. Um, Paul says the company is meh, but their podcast is interesting. So they do have a couple, I believe. So really interesting. Um so wonderful discussion there in the group and thanks for, for chiming in. I quite like it. I, I, I just think it's interesting for a watch list position at the very least, uh, lots of free cash flow. Um, so next company is actually, is it going to an ASX listed company? Why don't we go to a US listed company and in particular a basket of US companies seeing that we're on the topic of US, mate. Um, obviously, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but companies like Zoom, you know, a lot of these internet SaaS companies have been absolutely smoked. So I guess just on that, anything in particular catching your eye, anything there that you think this is really interesting, this basket, you know, any sectors, themes, what have you? Yeah, like, I mean, here's the thing, right? A lot of those companies are starting to look attractive. I mean, it depends on what your position. So, so Zoom, for example, right? If you look at its free cash flow, um, it looks like a really attractive business. That doesn't mean that the stock price can't go down further. Um, I mean, it can, again, fall by half and look even more attractive, right? I mean, that's that's one part of uh, sort of investing in high, high growth, uh, I guess, high beta stocks. Um, like I've just noticed that, it, like, so like one basket of companies that I look at is um, sort of the cybersecurity, new age cybersecurity companies, like say, say Zscaler, uh, CrowdStrike, Cloudflare, and Cloudflare is not strictly cybersecurity, but, you know, even, even a company like Okta, and they've all you know, they're all probably, you know, down 20% plus, 30% plus from their all-time highs uh, or from their, you know, recent highs or 52-week highs. And you could make the case that are they more value now? Well, I guess on a relative basis, they're more value now, but then, you know, are they value-value? They're probably not value-value, right? So, I mean, that's, mm. that's the, uh, but are they ever going to be value-value? <laughs> that is a bigger question to ask, and I don't know the answer for that. Uh, because, I mean, uh, so this, let's take Zscaler as an example. Zscaler's recent quarter, uh, they, um, they delivered something like 63% growth. Um, and 63% growth, I'm just trying to pull up the numbers. Uh, so this was fiscal 2022. And so fiscal 2022, the revenue went up to 230 million odd. So that, you know, if you just analyze that, that's roughly 800 odd, you know, 900 odd million that you're looking at for the year, uh, the growing at 60%. 
uh, they hit 1 billion in ARR, which roughly tells you that in a, in a year from now, they should be at a 1 billion revenue run rate easily because they've got that revenue locked in, uh, in uh, sort of an, in annual recurring revenue. And a free cash flow for this business was roughly 36% of the revenue. So this is this is wow. a cash machine, right? If you think about it. Now, of course, now when you when you do the free cash flow for these businesses, they all have you know stock-based compensation and things like that. So of course, that is getting added back. Uh, it's still printing gap losses, but then you know those uh, the extra stock that is being released, the dilution that shows up on the market cap or on the EV calculations as well, right? So I mean, the, the bottom line point. My point is that these. You know, you could think of these businesses in many different ways. An enterprise software business, so business that basically sells software, software to enterprises, large companies, it could decide to not be growing as quickly as it is doing today, and it would generate a lot of cash just by keeping its existing customers, right? Um, so, I mean, that's something to keep in mind. The other thing that the the CEO said on the call, for example, is that they think that they can go from a billion annual recurring revenue to about 6 billion annual or 5 billion annual recurring revenue. Um, or actually they said six <laughs> to six times of the current annual recurring revenue, just on the basis of their current product set and upsells. Mm. That is pretty huge, right? Because that basically says that given the customer base that they've got, they think that they have this much opportunity. That's just innovation that's driving, that can drive their growth. They've been basically pushing ARPU up. Um, and that's, just, you know, if you think about the opportunity then going forward, that is a lot of opportunity there. So, but still, however you want to look at it, this is not going to look like a value uh, bet at any point in time because, uh, you know, before it gets to value, people are going to snap it up and it's going to look no longer value, right? So that's the problem mm. that you have with, uh, but the way I like to think of these companies is if you can, can continue growing like this for, you know, or not even at this rate, let's say at 40% for several years, uh, going forward, then, you know, if it's generating 5 billion in ARR five years from now or four years from now, I mean, it should generate 5 billion in ARR in four years from now, if you even assume some slowdown uh, in the growth rate, you know, if you just have a 40% free cash flow margin, that's a $2 billion <laughs> free cash flow <laughs> per year, right? Um, that is pretty significant cash generation, right? And that 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 business could easily be a hundred billion dollar business at that point, um, you know. So you could get a healthy double, or maybe a little bit more than a double in about four years. So again, of course, the multiple could be lower, in which case you just have to hold longer. Then one of the things I think that's interesting to think about is for a growth business. That's the best part of the growth, buying growth is businesses with long runways and opportunities for growth and that are free cash flow generative and that are sticky, which typically is like enterprise software type of business, right? Typically enterprise software business, this is why enterprise software is so good. And people have sort of started realizing this is that you could pay up a little bit and you might underperform for a while, but you just need to hold longer and then you should be fine. <laughs> uh, mm. You know, as long as the world doesn't break apart, but if the world breaks apart, then nothing that you hold is going to work anyway. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I agree. So, yep. so th there is some value to holding, you know, so in many ways, growth helps you, uh, you know, cover up for some mistakes that you might make on evaluation front. Whereas if you buy a value stock where you're trying to figure out the value of, you know, is it going to be 20% up, 30% up, you know, are you within that range? Then, you know, if you make a small mistake, it can actually be pretty hefty cost to pay mm. because 
you know, uh, you're going to lose potentially lose the market for that reason. So um, I would say that there are a number of companies. Again, I I own I hold all of these. I made some small purchases for some. Uh, you know, for example, I bought some um, Zscaler. Um, you know, it was already a large position, so I didn't buy a lot more. Uh, but you know, I, I bought some, thinking like you know, like this is a business that's really executing really well. It knows what it is doing, so I added some. Um, I like to be active when the market is going down because that makes me feel like I'm in control. That's just my way of dealing with the volatility. So you buy shares because it, well, not just because, but it helps you to deal with volatility because you feel like you're taking advantage of it. It feels like I'm, you know, it feels like I'm taking advantage of it. It feels like, well, you know, instead of just watching a portfolio go down, which just looks like, you know, well, you've got so much red on the screen to look at. It's just mm. okay. Things are down. I can take some action. I don't need the money. Right now, um, I, I can I can afford to wait for five years, and as mm. I've always done it that way, um, to just to feel like that. You know, it's very difficult when you invest in the market. You're not really in control, but this is a way of making you feel that you're in control because you're taking positive action um, in, in a downturn. So I feel good about it, um, just doing that, um, and I, I do that. Do some positions again, like you know. I thought this was an attractive business to buy, so I bought. You know, another one. I mean, I think CrowdStrike had again a good result, and it could be an attractive buy at this point uh, as mm. well. Uh, I didn't add to it. Um, you know, I, I just because I follow Zscaler much more closely than I follow CrowdStrike. So uh, it, my tendency then is to basically focus on those businesses that um, are doing well. I'll highlight another business. You know, for some people to uh, to think about. I think this is an interesting one. So there's a, um, normally you would not think of, um, actually I'll point out one business first before, I, uh, you know, the two stock ideas here for people to look at. Oh, um, here we go. So there's a business called EPAM um, uh, Systems. This is an IT services business, right? Um, this stock has compounded at about 40% over the past decade. EPAM, is it E-P-A-M? E-P-A-M. EPAM systems, it has compounded at 40% over the last decade, right? So sometimes you'd find superb growth opportunities in areas that are, you know, rare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I shouldn't say rare. Uh, I mean, in, comp- in areas that you wouldn't think are, you know, hyper growth possibilities, right? But EPAM system is, is one of them. Um, so Again, you know, it recently got added to S&P 500. And, you know, when things get added to the S&P bump was active, <laughs> the S&P 500 bump, it got another like 10% bump. But, you know, this has been, again, a very interesting business where uh, it's just, you know, this graph is up and to the right. <laughs> uh, exponential. Found, exponential founder-run business, um, you know. It's a phenomenal one if, you know, to, uh, you know, again, if you look at the P ratio, I think it looks expensive, but, you know, again, I've held the stock for a long time and really well on this one. Um, so, so, so my, my intent of pointing this out is that sometimes there are industries that you do not think are, are, of, you know, are like great ones to have, you know, because there's so much competition in IT services and things like that, but there are winners, big winners in those areas too. So sometimes it helps to actually look outside uh, sort of the obvious baskets, right? You know, mm. the people think of, you know, you want to get the big winner, I might I have to buy that bio t- biotech, like that's going to solve cancer or something like that. It doesn't have to be like that, right? It can be something completely, you know, you know, boring, like IT services, as an example. Mm. Yeah. And I'll, um, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> no, 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 that's totally fair. And I agree. Um, 
you know, it's the picks and shovels play, right? I'm just going to bring this up here, which is what I brought up just when you were t- talking before. It's got Okta, Zscaler, and CrowdStrike in it. And um, you can see here that none of the, and I'm just, I'm using ratios today because I'm lazy, um, but, and I just wanted to illustrate the point here that you said that they weren't cheap. You know, they might never be cheap, like value stocks. And you can see all of them here above 20 times sales on an EV uh, enterprise value to revenues basis. But you also brought up the other point that they're growing fast. So if we bring in the, the revenues, for the next 12 months, you can see, if I bring that back, you can see that each of the businesses have continued to report higher and higher and higher um, revenue every every you know quarter. So these are businesses that are growing, even though maybe the sentiment, again, just using the ratios, there hasn't been there. We can see that the revenues are ratcheting up rapidly. And um, we see that with Okta, which is the business I'm most familiar with, the three, um, with the, the auto acquisition, um, it's basically just dominating. I mean, there's Microsoft alongside it there too. Don't get me wrong, there are competitors, but it's dominating that kind of single sign-on and, and workforce management space. So a really interesting business. Um, yeah, okay. And then EPAM is a totally new business to me. I know, you know, if I think of IT consulting, I think of the big ones, which are more strategic and, you know. Um, the, the Accentures of the world, right? The I mean, Accentures of the world, you, yeah. Yeah, that's what I think of. But, you know, but I mean, Accenture is like, what, a $100 or $200 billion company, right? So that's what, you know, there's always the possibility of someone like EPAM becoming that $200 billion company, $100 billion company in the future, right? And I mean, sometimes they do IPO early and then you can buy in early um, and enjoy the ride. And maybe they are not going to become the Accenture and that's always the possibility. But I like to say that you, if you, if you, you need to be consistent in your style. And if you, if you think that you're going to be a multi-bagger investor, then you have to have many such attempts. <laughs> and then you're, you're going to get some of them right. And if you know, uh, if you get some of them right, it should be enough. Um, hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, those, those are the other, uh, other I guess, the point. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Okta had good results. And the other thing I'll say is that many of these businesses, depends on the type of business, but a business like Okta, you, what you want to look at is just the remaining performance obligations because companies really sign long-term mm. deals with these guys. And, you know, when you look at a business that says, well, you know, I've got $2 billion of, you know, remaining performance obligations, that's basically future revenue that's locked in, effectively locked in uh, that they're going to make over the course of time. And they would also tell you what is current, which how much of that they're going to actually recognize over the next year. And you could see then from their guidance that, well, you know, maybe 90% of their guidance is effectively the current RPO. <laughs> <laughs> which means that if they can add just a little bit more, they're going to get more growth than what they're actually potentially uh, projecting, right? So, I mean, it's just very predictable type of business, this enterprise software, which is why a lot of people like them. Mm. And so the RPO, remaining performance obligations, basically tells you what's left to bill of a company. And then the current RPO means what's what they expect to bill in the next 12 months. So as you see that going up, you're basically getting, for a super reliable business like Okta, you're basically getting, they're telling you, here's where the next 12 months, this is what we're going to have. And then the 12 months after that, and then 12, like that's, it's like a rolling next 12 months forecast. So it's super easy for you to get a handle on where they're going in the short term, which as you say, investors love the predictability of these types of businesses. And that's why uh, the Accentures, the SAPs and the ERPs, businesses of the world can just keep generating, um, you know, high margins, even throughout market turbulence. Actually, speaking of which, just had a question here from uh, Virtuoso. It says, Doc, are you planning to consolidate your portfolio into stable larger names with the potential of a bear market um, when the burr stops? Or are you just going to stay and put, uh, put and play the long game? 
I don't know the burr. I don't know what that B double triple R means. But <laughs> so, so no. Uh, the as I said, I mean, it's a, I, I'm a firm believer on sort of you know looking for multibaggers. You know, like the best way to think about this is, you know, just give you. I've never actually. I've not put this out there. Maybe I should. I was, uh, okay, I'll put it out on the Rask podcast platform first. But and then just to give you a, a bit of how multibagging really works for you. So as I said, mm-hmm. sometime back, I sold like what. 40% of my Tesla position because it was too large, right? But here's the magic of multi-bagging, right? The magic of multi-bagging is the amount of cash that I got back from selling my 40% of the stake is mm-hmm. equivalent of 2X of the total capital I have ever put in in my brokerage accounts, ever. Wow. Right? So, so the 40% is twice the amount you've ever put into your Ever put account. in in my brokerage account, right? So that's wow. just... That that is just that is what happens when you can a invest for the long term and b have conviction and c really follow your conviction right. If you invest for the long term, look for multi baggers, and you are um, you know. So I don't intend to change that. And the 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 other thing that I think is important to realize is that I want I tend to invest in smaller businesses which have the potential to become the blue chip tomorrow. Right. Mm. So Tesla was not big tech until it became big tech. Right. Mm. So today it is big tech. <laughs> it's bigger than Facebook. <laughs> right. And you can, and I know there are going to be people who are going to call it overvalued and whatnot, and they can continue calling this because they have been calling it overvalued. But the, the, the thing is that that's what you want to do. You want to own, or, or another example is Apple. Right. I mean, just, this is again a stat I looked up this uh, morning. So as I said, Apple is up 30%. That's, I mean, Year to date, it's up 30%. Last three years, it's up 300% or something like that, mm. right? So sometimes you can also, you know, just by the, the very fact, if you own the best and if you own them with conviction and you just understand them really well, then you can you can opportunistically also use the big drawdowns or the, or the, the downdrafts that you see along the way, right? Um, you know, and it happens to every company. It has happened to a company like Apple multiple number of times, right? I mean, 2018, it was like, you know, falling like a stone. It's like Apple was dead. Here's the, you know, the best cash flow machine in the world that's dead, right? So I think, I think I don't intend to change that. My only, so, you know, I'm not doing anything different, really. Um, I let my, I let my positions become bigger. The companies, companies become bigger over time and they become more stable. You know, like one of the things I've realized recently in the turmoil is, the two stocks that hold my portfolio in good position are Apple and Tesla. <laughs> so, and they're both mega cap or, you know, so, uh, and one of them wasn't a mega cap long time back. And, you know, and when I started investing in, in Apple, like back in 2011, it wasn't uh, a trillion dollar company at that time. So I think, you know, that's the thing. My lesson for me is just basically just invest in good companies and just, you know, ride the volatility. Right. And, mm. Yeah, I, I I just love that, mate, because, um, and Virtuoso said money printing. Um, Emma Fisher also, this is the Emma Fisher user on YouTube, um, could be the real Emma Fisher from Early Funds Management, um, also made a comment there, so thanks for chiming in. But Virtuoso says money printing. And um, I think from, from that, I think you and I are very similar in this regard. The only way to achieve what you achieved with that um, you know, to say that I sold 40% of my holding, which was more than the money that I put into my brokerage account, um, is to, the first rule is to make sure that you hold the company for that long, right? You cannot achieve that type of return 
if you're investing and your average holding period is less than say two years. It's just not going to happen um, flat out. You know, you might get lucky. You might get, you might be one in a million that somehow stumble across like a, I don't know. I don't even know what kind of company would do that. And so I often get really frustrated when I see professional investors do this. I think to myself, you are, you are such a good investor. You know, whether you're a stock picker, whether you're, you know, you run a newsletter or whatever it is, I think you're such a good investor. You found a great company. Why on earth are you selling it because you're a prediction for the next few months? Or why are you selling it because your valuation is 20%? It just blows my mind that these enormous value creators, these companies, people go and sell them. And I just think this is, it's just too much for me. I just can't bring myself to do it. So I just keep holding it, even if it means a bit of pain in the short term. I just think the only way to, to get that is to, to hold on. And it comes back to that, that quote from Morgan Housel, which is uh, 99% of long-term investing is doing nothing. The other 1% changes your life. Um, you've got to hold it for a long period of time to get those types of those um, returns. So Virtuoso just chimed in. I meant burr as in it means money printing and thanks for the answer. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense now. Thanks for, for clarifying. Um, so there was one more company which I'd love to get to, which is um, a company called Alcidian. And for those of you that don't know Alcidian, we're going to switch gears massively. We're going to go back from sixth if we're talking about Tesla and Apple, and we're going to go back to first, even for Australian standards. It is a pretty small company. So trades on the ASX under the ticket code ALC, um, Alcidian Group. It's basically like a med tech company. So the way I think of Alcidian is basically a business that sells its software into hospitals and helps the hospitals manage patients. Um, if you think about, you know, we've all seen those Grey's Anatomies or insert hospital, Chicago Med Show, whatever you, you're into, where, you know, back in the day, they would walk to the end of the patient's bed. They would pull up the, they would grab the kind of little, I don't even know what you call it, a um, little bit of paper and they'd mark down what the, the patient is up to, what their vitals are, they'd record the time of the day, you know, so on and so forth. And then they'd, you'd, you'd walk out into the, the nurse's admin area and you would see the, the whiteboard with all the names. Those days should be long behind hospitals, but the reality is they're not. And so the first wave of Alcidium was to modernize that approach to have patient tracking um, to bring kind of diagnostics and clinical decision-making systems into hospitals. Now, obviously, this is a business that sells software, so we like the things about it, you know, in terms of sticky revenue, it's deeply embedded, um, it's recurring, all that sort of stuff. But the reality is that it's hard to sell into hospitals. So getting a hospital to take whatever sort of patient management software it's got or um, clinical decision-making software it's got, taking that out and replacing it with our city is hard, uh, particularly when hospitals don't just want the best in patient tracking. They also want, you know, clinical reporting. They also want um, what's going on with medicine and the pharmacy. It has to integrate there. It has to integrate with procurement, admin, um, you know, all of this stuff. Emergency has to be able to use it if, you know, the, the, um, ICUs using it as well. And so they want integrated systems. And so typically what happens in these big hospitals is, and I'll switch over to screen sharing for those of you that are watching the video or joining live. Um, so if we switch over here, we can see what typically happens inside um, a hospital. Um, Alcidium would come in and it would offer, you know, all of its, its, its platform would effectively talk to other parts of the hospital. So you'd have uh, analytics, the doctors would be able to see vitals if um, the ambulance was coming into the 
the um, ER, like what's what's the first touch point for the for the patient, and then we've got you know real time um, interoperability here from um, the Maya Precision platform. So that's what it's called. It's called Maya Precision, and it's basically been not necessarily Maya, but the whole suite of Alcidian has been formed through acquisitions and also internal R and D. And you can see that here. So why is this interesting now? Why is Alcidian all of a sudden a company that we're talking about? Well, because it's just made the acquisition of a company called Silverlink. And what tends to happen in most hospitals, and this is a business that operates in the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, by the way, um, what tends to happen is there are big competitors like Epic in there, um, which Epic is a separate company altogether. And they basically come in and they, they basically offer this thing called an EPR, which is a, a platform or, or a system for managing everything in the hospital. So you can see on the left-hand side here, this is probably the, the highlight of the charts from the, the acquisition update. That basically shows where Alcidian plays and what hospitals need to run their, their systems. And for years, um, Alcidian has been stuck in this part of the chart up here. If you can see my mouse moving around, so like the clinical decision-making. And now with this acquisition of Silverlink, they can go closer to becoming a true EPR. The thing is, this is a $55 million acquisition for Alcidian, which is massive considering it was only just over $300 million in market cap. So they're doing a capital raise and institutional placement. But basically it makes both of these businesses more competitive. Um, Silverlink signs typically longer term agreements. The one point to note is that, and this comes from the RASC analyst, Catherine Goh, who wrote this up for our members, is that Silverlink hasn't won a contract in in five years from what we can tell. Um, so the company is kind of stuttering in its growth. And this is where Alcidium with, with a, you know, kind of the ambitious plan to transform hospitals has come in and, and can kind of take it on and offer Silverlink software and integrated systems into its own and package that up for hospitals. And it can become more compelling because sometimes Alcidian has to run over the top of Epic or Cerna or one of these other um EPR type businesses. So um, it's a really interesting partnership. I think the thing that I was a little bit disappointed in is if we can come up with um, the purchase price, the, the purchase price of $55 million, um, basically, I think it was off the top of my head around about seven or eight times sales for a business that isn't growing. So I think this maybe harkens back to what we were talking about before, which is that when you have such a sticky business, it can have a very stable valuation, even if that business is not growing. Um, in this case, it really hasn't been growing, which means that I just thought that maybe the skew between earnouts could have been a bit more compelling for our city and shareholders insofar as not a lot of it was left for um, the vendors of Silverlink to grow. Um, I like to see more of an even split between cash upfront and some type of earnout for the business, particularly when it's such a big deal. So, that's a bit disappointing, but on the whole, um, Kate Quirk, who runs Alcidian, has done a fantastic job along with her board to to grow in the UK. So I think this adds to that value prop. I don't know. I've ranted for about five minutes there, but all in all, I like the deal. I think the strategic fit is there. It's just the valuation um, of Silverlink was probably the question mark, but all in all, I think it's it's a pretty good deal. And I, I if I, I can't remember if I own shares, but if I do, I'll be taking part. I just think um, it's like a pro rata. Um, non-renounceable rights issue, which means that you can get shares if you already own shares 
in the proportion set out here. So it's a 10 for one, uh, or one for 10, sorry, meaning that it, for every 10.5 you currently own, you can get one new share at the, the price. So for some people that won't be very meaningful, but hey, it's, it's below market. So interesting. Anyway, I've riffed for long enough. Any questions on that, Matt? I know I don't know this business that well. And uh, yeah, so I have nothing to say. The price doesn't look that bad. I mean, it's a stable eight times. They could have paid maybe six times or five times or something, but maybe yeah. that's what they needed to pay to get the deal through. Yeah. And this is, and that's the thing, you know, there probably aren't too many businesses that Alcidian could swallow that offer that strategic technology for the business in terms of adding yeah. up to becoming a more fully fledged EPR. So, you know, in terms of, what's available they probably had to pay for it in terms of they had to pay that extra uh, extra bit of froth on the top but that's okay the, um, i guess the quickly the only other thing i guess this is maybe in the riskier side i'll, I'll suggest one thing that just came to my mind so e e electronic patient record businesses epr businesses like i mean if somebody has an epr system already in place that's very very different eprs tend to be extremely sticky um so if somebody's got an epr from epic that just impacts so much of the workflow that's extremely really difficult mm. to actually rip it off and offer something else because it mm. just has so many touch points but i mean you know sometimes what happens is eprs you know there's like an a you know, there's probably like a 10-year review at which point maybe you can get in and replace so it's, it's going to be a slow burn but maybe they only just need a few wins right i mean if you win that's one it. or two two hospitals that's probably going to move the dial um, mm. for them by a lot. So, Alcidian is winning deals. I think they've got two of the trusts in the, in the UK, which is, um, you know, they're meaningful. Um, of the 150, I think one of the trusts was in that 30 to 40 range in terms of the size of the hospital. But when we looked at the size of hospitals we were, or trusts, we were looking at um, the number of employees. That's basically how we were judging the size of these potential deals. And the one thing to keep in mind is that if you can offer the fully fledged EPR, you actually, you tend to write deals in the tens of millions of pounds. Whereas if you're only offering, say like a patient tracking solution, it might be in the one to 2 million pounds if you're lucky, right? So having this ability not only transforms, um, you know, the, the conversation around what we can offer, but it also transforms the deal sizes, how much they participate in those mm. new rollouts when they come around. It's just like you said, if it's only every 10 years that one of these, you know, when these things go up for tender, they, they want to be able to have the full conversation, not just a tiny part of it and not just piggyback on something else. And it's important to, according to our city, and it's important to break down the industry of trust. So some of them only want best in breed and they're looking for a modular approach. Some of them have already tied up with an EPR and they don't want to have Cerner for 90% of it and then have Alcidian off to the side. And then some of them are happy to do like a more of a hybrid approach and be packaged in together. And so basically it just transforms that conversation. It gives them additional trust to sell into, to cross sell and, and all that. And I think if you take a long-term perspective to this business, I think the shares, you know, again, look quite expensive, but it's a, it's a sticky high margin or at least will be high margin business that's growing uh, year over year run by aligned and talented board and management. So for Australian businesses and for Australian investors with a 10 year or five year horizon, I think this is a really interesting business and it's one that we recommended quite a while ago, but one that I would still have a small slice of my portfolio in today. Admittedly, it is a small cap, so you've got to be aware of the risks. Um, doesn't offer a dividend or anything like that. So don't expect that anytime soon. 
but yeah, it's a really interesting business. That's ALC on the ASX. Um, so just to recap what we've talked about today, uh, we've talked about um, Magellan, which is a really interesting business. I would probably have it on my watch list um, and you know, for dividend yield and for a few other reasons is they can stabilize that global, that global fund. We talked about the, the cybersecurity stocks or you did in particular, and you talked about Zscaler, um, about Okta, uh, about CrowdStrike. And these businesses are still growing rapidly, even though their share prices may have been a bit soft of late. And finally, Alcidian in there, um, which is uh, a business that is on the ASX under tick code ALC, uh, growing, has made an acquisition, another really impressive business run by aligned people. The, I, I think the one thing that I'm going to take away from today, mate, and I did not know, uh, is that how like meaningful that decision to sell Tesla was for you? I think that's such an like, and it's, it's just amazing insight for investors that sit back and they think, you know, is this long-term high-growth investing worth it? Um, just even one or two of these over a lifetime can be really meaningful, right? Oh, it can, it can. Yeah. So like, I mean, investing really, so what I like to tell people is that investing seems like it's not working initially. The first two years seems like, well, nothing's mm. happening. First three years seem like, you know, then after five years, you start noticing that something is happening. And then like, you mm. know, the 10th year, you sort of like, oh, okay, this stuff really works, right? And and then, you know, from 10 to 15, 15 to 20, if you can really continue doing this, you know, uh, it really has a meaningful impact um, mm. on on your on not just you know your, yourself your family but also not just your time right you can choose to you know if you invest mm. well you can actually be a master of your own time in many ways and and then the final thing I like to say about you know investing in in businesses that are growing and interesting you learn about the world you learn about so many different things you know and yeah so I mean yeah it can you know time is really like I mean this you know we can't go and create time quickly right time is time you just have to let it flow. And as you said, you know, uh, you know, the quote you made about, you know, sometimes you just have to, um, you know, do your research, sit on your bum and do sometimes do nothing. And then that's really, you know, overactivity really does not get you anywhere. That's. Yeah. And that's what I've found is actually you can be, if, if all of the investors are as smart as each other, the one that does the best is the one that does the least I've found. So that's um, right. Yeah, yeah. I think it's- so just going to quickly comment on something else that you know. I know we are over time. So you know, one of the things that we hear about, oh, you know, that manager, you know, reduced the position, this, that, and things like that. The, the, you know, this is no advice, but this is just you know, just contrast that. A fund manager has to produce a report at the end of the month, <laughs> commenting on yep. what their position sizes are. You know, which was biggest, which ones moved, which ones didn't, how much was the return. Well, if you're only reporting, you know, uh, to your partner at house, <laughs> maybe they don't even ask you that question <laughs> at the end of the month. You're not reporting to anyone. So as long as you're honest with your process, sometimes you just don't need to do anything, right? So a lot of the things that happen, you know, moving things around, that overactivity, um, you know, is probably not necessary. I know people who, you know, as investors, probably if they were managing their own money, would probably not do anything. Mm. But if they're managing money for somebody else, they're just forced to do it because that's what how the industry works, right? So, yeah, yeah, and I agree. And I think a lot of us, when we look at professional fund managers, we probably pay too much attention to what they're buying or selling and not really understanding the incentives behind those moves. Some of them say valuation when really it's got nothing to do with that. Um, some of them say, you know, this one, they, they come up with a thesis for selling it versus buying it um, even intra-month. And really some of that can, even being cynical, can just be window dressing. Remembering that most fund managers have to be fully invested at any one time. So we're paying them to be fully invested, which means that 
whether we like it or not, they can't just go to cash like you can, or they can't just ride out the volatility. They've that's what we're paying them to do something in particular. So yeah, they're great. They're great for insights, yeah. not to knock on them, but it's just it's different for for personal. Yeah, don't just you know just don't pay too much attention to people's individual fund managers' moves, positions up and down, and things like that. And you know, there's a ripple effect that can happen. The other thing that you said, which is which I, you know, I have a contrarian view on this, like. So it's nice to have a fund or a you know investment vehicle that is less volatile, but volatile is the price that you pay for mm. excess returns. <laughs> so if you can't tell, you're not going to get excess returns. You're going to get you know, and maybe that's okay for some. You know, somebody wants fifteen percent returns. That's going to be great. Uh, you know, but if you want thirty percent returns, you you can't get thirty percent returns per year. I'm not saying that you should, but I'm just as an example. You can't get that by minimizing volatility. And there are many ways, you know, in cash as a hedge, you could do right. You could buy puts, puts or hedges. And and trust me, I've tried everything. Uh, I've tried. <laughs> I have tried uh, uh, all, all the magic. And then ultimately, I've come back to realize that, ah, this stuff is just too hard. It's a lot of waste of time. You can't really pick, you know, nine out of 10 times, you're not going to, it's like calling the recession. You're going to, you're going to call out 25 recession. Sessions and then you're going to be right twice. <laughs> so, yep. <laughs> so it's stop giving up. Uh, yeah. Anyways. Yep. No, I agree. I agree. Um, so if people want to find out where they can go um, to subscribe and get this end of year review, I find these the, to be some of the best things that I read. The end of year review um, that you're doing for Seven Investing. Where can they go to get that, mate? Uh, just go to like seven uh, seveninvesting.com forward slash subscribe. Use the RAS code, get some discount. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that's really it. Yeah, cool. Uh, otherwise, follow us on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, follow us on Twitter. We'll have the links in the show notes. If you're going to start US investing in 2022 here from Australia, you may as well get a Seven Investing subscription because it's so cheap for the value that they create. And these advisors are creating like a nearby here. So just go and get one. Um, you could even trial it for a month or two and see if you like it. And I think you will. So great stuff. Um, and just to confirm, you're wearing a seven investing t-shirt. Has how, Do you or do, does Simon make these available to the general and public? Well, I think there is a shop, actually. There is a shop. There now. is a shop. There is a shop. Uh, although I, I will say this, you know, the shop is not, is, I think on Shopify, it's stock I own. Uh, I'm just a bit disappointed that if you're shopping from Australia, you're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to be <laughs> slugged some really heavy uh, shipping fees. So, um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Maybe you um, need to get on Redbubble, just saying. Just saying, Red Bubble. Maybe Red Bubble is probably potentially better um, in terms of distribution. <laughs> so yeah, I, 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 I was uh, yeah a little uh, I was a little uh, taken aback by uh, by the shops uh, shipping fees, but yeah, that's, that's that. right. It looks like it's worth it. So there's some uh, merch that we can get. Okay, and if you want to hear more from me, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Owen Rast or head to www.rast.com.au. I'll let you know on Twitter when the um, Value Investor Program 2.0 is ready, or even when the beta is up and running. If if you want to get in early uh, and get in cheap. Mate, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to join me today. Thank you. The pleasure is always mine.